Hi there, my name is Alex Faust, and you're listening to Conversations at the Edge. Each week, we meet with the top business thought leader to learn what they think we should be prioritizing to build better businesses, positively impact our communities, and scale up. Good afternoon, good morning, good night, depending what part of the world you're joining us from. I'm Alex Faust, David Rendell here. He is an international speaker. He's spoken to audiences on every inhabited uh, continent. And some of his clients include U.S. Air Force, Australian government, Microsoft, AT&T. So I want to start with um, becoming extraordinary. You talk a lot about being a maverick. And um, what does that mean? What does it mean to be great? And why do you feel that the messaging around uh, greatness is oftentimes so misleading? The message around greatness is usually defined by someone who has their idea of what great is and they want you to follow that same path or achieve that same end, right? So greatness is when you can be really systematic or greatness is when you can be really visionary or greatness is when you can uh, follow the rules or greatness is when you put in your time or whatever it happens to be. And so I think too often we have a very limited definition of greatness. I mean, even think of it in terms of school what's excellence for children you know it's it's doing well in school so you get into a good college so you get a good job and if somebody isn't doing well in school then we just panic and they're never going to make it and it's all over and it's not going to work and everything's falling apart and we have to fix them and get them to succeed in school when millions of people every year are tremendously successful even though they weren't successful in school and and some people who are successful in school don't end up being successful in the real world Um, and so we put a premium i think we have the wrong definition of greatness the wrong definition of excellence and too often it involves forcing people into very narrow bands of behavior and very narrow ideas of what even just good is much less excellence so do you have a, a definition that you like to go off of for excellence I think excellence is when you find um, your unique uh, strengths and you find a way to put them into practice meaningfully in the world, right? When you find uniquely who you are and you find the place in the world that needs who you are and needs what you do, I think that's, I think that's excellence, that's greatness, that's happiness, that's fulfillment. I think all those things tend to kind of move in the same direction. Um, Whereas too often we define excellence as overcoming who you are to be what the world or society or corporations or your boss or your parents uh, would like you to be or think you should be. So like when parents go, hey, we want you to be a doctor or when uh, people say, oh, well, you didn't go to college. So, you know, fill in the blank. Um, So I think it's not about so much fitting in or doing um, what other people expect of us as much as it's really discovering who we are to begin with and then how we can use that in a unique way to, to serve others. Your book is called Freak Factor. Why that's the title of the book? Yeah, there's kind of two answers to why it's the title of the book. One's because it used to be one of my nicknames. So I'm six foot six now, six nine in heels. Um, when I graduated high school, I was six four, one forty five. That's not an attractive body. Um, and uh, when I... Um, was in college, I had to work my way through college. And so I would paint houses. And when we would do the interior, people would make jokes like, oh, it's nice to have him because you don't need ladders. Um, And so people started calling me the freak, right? Um, Because I could just reach right up there and do what other people couldn't. And they'd certainly send me up on the ladders when nobody else could reach even with the ladder. And I would do the most dangerous work. And so it was one of my nicknames, but the more important reason, so that's the personal part of it that got me thinking about it. And then 
If I call you a neat freak, if I call you a clean freak, if I call you a control freak, I'm criticizing you. I'm telling you you're too much of something, you need to ease up, stop being so controlling, stop being so neat, stop being so clean. And by the way, the clean freaks and neat freaks are having their revenge right now during COVID, right? Because they're like, I told you so. Um, and they don't look so crazy, just like preppers did, don't look so crazy in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Um, but when we call somebody in athletics a freak, when we call um, Tim Lincecum, a, picture, a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants who won two World Series with them, when we call him a freak, when we call uh, Jerome Kurse um, of the Tennessee Titans a few years back a freak, when we call Giannis um, on the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, who's been the MVP now, I think twice, and we call him the Greek freak, we're saying that someone's unusually gifted and talented. So freak is this word that we use to criticize and we use to praise. We use it to admire and we use it to put down, to denigrate. But there's also that upside positive version of the freak. There's a book called Deep Change by a guy named um, Robert Quinn. And he says, deviance, um, excellence is a form of deviance. You become excellent because you're doing things that normal people do not want to do, right? So excellence is a form of deviance. That's why it's the freak factor. Because it, to your original question, if you're going to be excellent, you have to be deviant. And yet when you're deviant, people want you to be normal. But be excellent, but excellence is being better than and different than what most people do or else it wouldn't be excellence. So what people really want is excellence, but don't be weird about it. And those are incompatible ideas. And yet they're the ideas we have. And so we lock people into this impossible equation where they can't be excellent uh, without being weird, but we tell them not to be weird. And so they try to be more normal and they end up average and mediocre and invisible and even more so unhappy, uh, which I think is probably the worst part of it. So how do we as, as leaders, um, is there a process for understanding which attributes we should really focus on um, to kind of get to the next level and, and reach our own excellence? This idea that weaknesses are also strengths, that the things that people are telling us to fix are oftentimes our best qualities. I was always in trouble because I couldn't sit still and be quiet and do what I was told. Now I get paid to stand up and talk and run my own business. I was always in trouble for being hyperactive. Then I started doing Ironmans and people were like, wow, that's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it's also hyperactive, right? But now it's hyperactive in a good way, in an acceptable way, in a way that people admire. But I didn't succeed by moderating those skills or those, those qualities that people told me to moderate. I succeeded by, by amplifying them. So the way we succeed people so people come up to me after the talk and they're like okay well what's good about this bad thing about me right my formula for success is don't try to stop being stubborn right be more persistent and recognize that people will criticize you and see you as too stubborn right as a stubborn freak as overdoing the stubbornness and why can't you just relax and let it go and give up like most people do because that's not how you succeed you succeed with persistence when i try to fix that weakness i actually end up neutralizing that strength when i become less stubborn i become less persistent and so i'm actually damaging the best quality that i have in an effort to get better so i'm not becoming better i'm just becoming more normal more typical more average more invisible more mediocre and we're back to the point that we started with at the beginning the, the fitting in versus finding the right fit, um, do you see that being advantageous uh, internally with like culture building as well? Well, I, I think we have to be careful with culture building. You know, sometimes we say these are our values and we hire for values and that's great. But when you have certain values, it means you don't value other things, right? And it means you don't hire other people who value those things. And so you oftentimes lose a certain amount of diversity, a certain amount of diversity of thought. 
Um, and, and sometimes you devalue things that are also valuable, right? Uh, almost by definition. And so I, I do think that um, you can kind of say, you know, this company is for these kinds of people. Um, this company does things this way. I think it's okay, Max Dupree, um, former CEO of Herman Miller said a leader's job is to define a reality. I think we have a certain amount of control of that, but I do think we have to be careful because every time you say we value this more than this, you may come to a time in your organization, like let's say during the pandemic, when you realize you're missing a value that's really valuable, but you weeded those people out for a long time because you didn't want that. You wanted all the positive people, for example. And so you didn't have any negative, pessimistic, worried, anxious people who put money in savings, who have pandemic preparedness plans, who stockpile masks, who think about uh, what's going to happen if the company goes under or wants to have, you know, alternative revenue streams and diversification in case things go bad because you sort of weeded out the negativity and you focused on the positive people. You didn't see the upside to negativity, right? You didn't see the upside to anxiety. You wanted happy, positive, upbeat people who saw the possibilities. Well, that's great. But in certain situations like the pandemic, you might realize there's a shortage of just like organizations that hire for obedience, conformity, normality, and all those things. They hit a wall at some point where there's no innovation. There's no change. There's no adaptation. So I think we can definitely do that. We just have to make sure that the things we say we value are valuable enough that we're not missing really crucial elements that are going to be important for our organization. And that we might at least have to recognize that we need a few people who don't fit those or are always pushing against those to, to challenge us, to keep us on our toes, to keep us from getting too comfortable and getting lost in something that really isn't true. Organizations exist to make people's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant. So I think that's one of the real tests is when I come into work, as the CEO or as the founder, am I making my strengths effective and my weaknesses relevant? Because sometimes the, 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 the owner's the worst one. They're like, well, I just do what nobody else wants to do. I have to do all the things that, that kind of fall between the cracks. It's up to me to just be willing to do anything and everything. That's a great mindset, but you're oftentimes a highly paid entry-level worker when you do that. And then you're oftentimes unhappy and unfulfilled and you're setting a bad example for other people. So am I making people's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant? And am I doing the same for myself and setting that example for the organization? Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Edge. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it with a friend or a teammate who you think would benefit from what we covered. In addition, you can find us on LinkedIn to get all of the updates. Or if you'd like to hear the full conversation, just visit growthinstitute.com forward slash the edge to learn how you can become a member as well. Thanks again and see you next time.